So if you got your Bible, turn to Exodus tonight. It's like good old-fashioned Bible study. We're going to look at two chapters, uh, chapters 14 and 15, and we're gonna we're gonna look at some. Uh, you know, when you when you see two giant chapters, you can't study everything. Uh, but I've picked out a few things that I think I will speak to to us tonight, and so. I hope that uh, I hope the Holy Spirit is in that, and that these will be really applicable. But the idea tonight simply is trust and obey. Did anybody sing that song, like that old old song, trust and obey? I hear that. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, Ernest, you sang it. All right, that's good. I like that. Yeah, to trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's right. So that's the idea tonight. It's very simple. That's the spoiler alert. Um, the problem with some things that are simple is that God had to make them simple because he knew we would always struggle with them. And so this idea that we need to trust and obey is really, really powerful, and it's the thing we struggle with every day of our lives. So let's take a look, Exodus chapter 14. Uh, I think we'll just go ahead and I'll give a little history, but look at verse 4. Verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. What we have here is the famous scene. It's the beginning of the famous scene of the Israelites crossing on dry ground. So the waters of the Red Sea are going to part and Israel is going to cross on dry ground. You know the story. Egypt is going to follow and the waters are going to collapse on them and they will all drown in that collapse. And what you see is the heart of so far the whole story and that is that the Lord be made known that he is the Lord. That's the number one thing. If you want to know the number one thing for the Lord in your life, it's that you would be a person, if you're in Christ, where people look at you and they know that the Lord is Lord. That's what every fight pretty much comes from. Every fight comes from these little idols that we pick up and we hang on to them and we hold on to them and we hug them and we love them and then eventually they turn and they bite us and inject us with some poison. And so what does God do? Because he is loving and he is merciful and he is gracious. He comes and he smashes those little idols out of our hands and out of our lives. Imagine if we were godly enough people filled with the spirit. Yes, we are if we are Christians, but like tapped into the power of the spirit in the word, in Christian community, and we just never picked up another idol. Imagine how much heartache would be saved. Imagine how much freedom we would have. People would look at you and they would look at me and they would know that the Lord, he is God. And yet, most of us, off and on for the rest of our lives, are going to struggle with either picking up those little idols or wasting time just staring at them, wondering, should I pick that up or should I not? And so Egypt, one more time, God's going to harden their heart. They're going to chase after uh, the, uh, the Israelites, and God is doing this so that their hearts are hard and they will not be changed, but maybe other people's hearts will be changed when they see the people of God pass through the waters and the people not of God cannot pass through the waters. So hopefully folks will know that he is God. Now, I think what's interesting is that 
as we continue to look at this story, we're going to see that, yes, the people of God get delivered, but the people of God always struggle with belief. So let's look a few more verses ahead, and let's just see how quickly we forget. It's amazing how quickly we forget. Look at Exodus 14, 11 through 14. I'll start in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the Lord and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Look at verse 14. If you're an underliner, underline this verse. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. I don't know, it's, it's amazing to me how quickly these folks want to go back to Egypt. I don't know if you've ever had a situation where there was like a dark past. If you ever had like some of you who came to Christ later in life, some of you who had the dreaded college years, like maybe you have like the, a little bit of some, you've got some skeletons in the closet, and, and I know that's true. Some of you had, um, you know, you did stuff you wish you hadn't have done with um, in dating relationships. You, maybe you were dishonest in the past. There's just different things that we all kind of have in the past. And, and when God frees us from that, it's just, it's wonderful. But there always comes a moment when the uncertainty of following the Lord is so uncomfortable that the old life, that at least you knew what you were going to get, just starts to sparkle a little bit. And, you know, that's got a term because it's been around a long time. The, the term is backsliding. It's when you just want to go back. It's where you, God has brought you so far, but you just, you just want to go back. This is where, and I love this, I remember asking Heather one time, uh, you know, I was, I had been a Christian for a while. I was a young guy in ministry and I had been struggling with some sin and Heather, Heather had found out about it and we talked about it and it was a, it was a, a, a sweet, but really hard time in our marriage. And, uh, and I said, don't you ever struggle with stuff from the past? And I just loved her answer because it wasn't self-righteous. It wasn't because she's like super disciplined, but here's what she said. And, and it's been so impactful. I remembered it for years. Uh, Will Carlisle and I were talking about this yesterday. She said, she looked me in the eye and she said, why would I want to put Jesus on the cross again? Now we know we can't physically go put Jesus on the cross. One and done. He paid for it all on the cross. But that agony, the suffering, the bearing my sin and my guilt and my shame and your sin and your guilt and your shame and just make that exponential how many times that happened over and over again. She looked at me and with this great love for the Lord and I thought that answer was perfect. 
Why would I want to go back when he suffered so much to get me out of there? Why would I want to put him on the cross again? I, I'll be super candid. I had been on staff here for just a few months, and I think I had one of these moments. Um, I had gotten COVID, and then I got a nail in my eye, and then like, um, like every like working with new people and all the stuff. It was like it was stressful. It was like super stressful just being here the first few months, and I thought maybe I should have just stayed at the other place. And now the other place wasn't like full-on Egypt with bondage. It was a great church. And, uh, and there's some people here tonight from that church. It was a great church. But I knew God had called me out of that place to a new place. I knew God had called me here. I'm glad the Lord called me here. But make no mistake, just because God gets you out of Egypt doesn't mean he puts you on the easiest road there is. It means that the road he puts you on, he's also going to guide you on. And he's going to be there with you and he's going to provide. He doesn't free you to give you the ultimate life of luxury. He frees you from one place to take you to do his work that he might be known as the God who is. So that that means that I'm going to face trials and I'm going to face tough times and I'm going to have hard things that happen so that he shows up over and over and over again. So this is where the Egyptian or this is where the Israelites are. They these verses uh, you know 12 11 and 12 they're like were there no graves in Egypt? Why didn't we just stay there? Well obviously it is good that God brought them out. But just know if you've ever thought maybe it was just it was just easier back in the old way. In some ways it was, but it's just because it was familiar, not because it was good. And when he frees you, the Bible talks about set your face like flint. Don't veer to the left or the right. We march straight ahead when he frees us from one place and calls us to another. They forgot, they forgot so quickly but I love verse 14, and I love Moses' strength here. Moses says to them in verse 13, fear not, stand firm, see what God is going to do, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians who you see today, you'll never see him again. And then verse 14, it's the crescendo. He says, the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be still. And the word in the ESV is silent, I know, but the idea is be still. Sometimes the best thing you can do when you want to go back to the old life is just to sit there for a minute. Remember what he's brought you from. You don't know exactly where you're going. But I think a powerful thing is to sit there and to say, God, I know you brought me this far. I'm going to rest in you right now and trust that you're going to finish what you have started, Philippians 1.6. And so you hang and you sit there and you soak in the Lord and you don't worry about the future and you don't worry about the past and you're in the moment and you just say, God, I'm excited to see what you're going to do. And what we see here is that 
Sometimes in those moments, we don't really have to pray about what to do next. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Um, I think that it's, I think it's Jason D's dad that says this. Uh, he says, just do the next right thing. Like sometimes you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do. I don't know what you want me to do. Well, sometimes it's like, just you do know what you're supposed to do. It's the next right thing. It's like, be a good employee because you're at work thinking about all this. Or it's like, well, call your mom because you told her you'd call her this evening. Like, you just do the next right thing. And the next right thing for them was to just walk forward. If you're struggling with pornography, the next right thing is don't turn it on. And the next right thing after that might be call one of your buddies and say, hey, I got this desire to do this thing. And it's amazing how often it's uncomplicated walking with the Lord. It's pretty interesting how he puts the next right thing in front of us so often. And we're just like, oh, I didn't know how that was going to work out, but it did work out. And you just do the next right thing. The problem with us humans is we like to imagine not like a few minutes from now. We like to imagine like three months from now. And do you know what happens when you get three months down the road? You left God in the present. And when you get three months down the road, you go into like your own little world and you project all these things that could or might or would happen. And the Lord's like, hey, I'm back in the present. Why don't you come back here with me? And of course he's in the future. He's got it all taken care of, but you're not in the future. So he's right there with you in the present. So it's, he's telling them, hey, in the present moment, go forward. And it's interesting. He says, why are you crying out to me? Well, what does that mean? That's a prayer. Sometimes the Lord's like, hey, you don't have to pray about that. This is the next right thing. Do it. Joshua, the same thing. Moses' predecessor, he has a moment too, and the Lord says, why are you down on your knees? You know what the next right thing to do is. Now get up, Joshua, and lead the people. Then we see the reason these folks can have such great confidence is in verses 19 through 24, and it shows us that the Lord is leading these people. Now, here's the beauty. They have this incredible picture all the time that God is leading them, and I'll show it to you in just a second. The difference is we don't. We have the Holy Spirit who is incredibly invisible, but this, you're about to see a picture of the Holy Spirit that they could see visibly, and I think we get a, a snapshot into history to see what they got to see visually because we have this same spirit with us all the time. And we need to realize as we do the next right thing, as we walk forward in the Lord, as we remind ourselves, I don't want to go back to the past. I'm not going back to the old country. I'm marching ahead for the Lord. We need to realize we're not alone. And Israel has the presence of God with them all the time. And yet all the time they thought of themselves as alone. You and I, we are never alone if the Lord is with us. So look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of a cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So in one picture, you have two movements of God here. One is called the angel of the Lord, and one is this cloud, this pillar of cloud. What we're going to see in just a second is that one is fire and one is a cloud. And the fire, as they are going to go through the wilderness, is always going to lead them at night. And the cloud is always going to lead them in the day. They're going to have a constant 24-7 reminder that God is with them. Now, here's the difference. 
they didn't each and every one have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They had a picture way up in front of the camp during the day of this cloud leading them. And at the camp at night, they had this picture of this fire that was watching over them. And they had to go to bed at night and they had to think, I know the Lord is out there. But we, as New Testament believers, we have the same pillar by day and fire by night. And when we go to bed, we don't have to think, I know God is out there because he's in here. So while they had these incredible pictures, we have a much more intimate existence with the Lord as the Holy Spirit indwells us by day and by night. And so we look, it stood behind them, verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. And so what you have this picture is this incredible picture of the cloud and the fire coming together and making this incredible lighted cloud that is whirling around. And you can imagine if you're an Egyptian, you're nervous about this. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea, and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them. In the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians." I'll just go ahead and finish reading this, this section. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course. And when the morning appeared and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea and the waters returned and they covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. How much effort did these Israelites have to put into God doing something incredible? All they had to do was watch him work. I think that's one of the hardest things for me and you is to watch the Lord work. We're always trying to like fix his, like fix some stuff so that it'll work, so that he can work some things out. We're always trying to help God. Now they had to wait a long time for God to show up, but when he showed up, it was unmistakable that he showed up. I, I talked to a guy one time, I, um, I, was, I liked to deer hunt, and as a kid, uh, I really wanted to kill like a giant buck. And we were camping as a family one year in Cades Cove, Tennessee, and this, uh, this man, he was like seriously 
country, like serious country. They were camping in the, in the campsite next to us, and uh, we were slapping mosquitoes, and he said, I knew it was serious country, even as a kid, because he said, oh, y'all need some mosquito dope? We were like, what's that? He said, skeeter dope. You don't have any skeeter dope? We were like, bug spray? He was like, skeeter dope, yeah. And so, uh, and so he, like, we borrowed some of his skeeter dope, and, uh, and we sprayed ourselves with it, and, uh, and we started talking, and uh, I don't remember how hunting came up, but he said, he said, oh, let me tell you the secret to killing a big deer. And I said, yes, sir, tell me the secret. He said, when you want to get out of your deer stand, don't. I was like, what? He said, just sit there longer. They got to walk by at some point. Most people leave too early. And I thought, well, that's just the easiest advice in the world. And so I, uh, and then you sit in your deer stand and it's like 8 a.m., and nothing happens, and it's 9 a.m., and nothing happens, and it's 10 a.m., and you're, like, getting a bunch of texts from people about what they're doing and uh, what you could be doing. And, uh, and then at some point in there, you're like, I'm out. And I'm sure that the deer are like, he's gone. Let's go. Like, I mean, I think, I think there's a, a, an application, just a life application for watching the Lord. Most Christians get out of the stand before God shows up. They just leave before he starts to work. They go back to Egypt. They go back to the old life. They create their own narrative about this. I'm sure this is God's plan. I can't tell you how many people I heard, like, they were like, I'm giving up dating for two months. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And then a week later, they're like, I'm dating so-and-so. God brought him into my life. I'm like, no, I don't think he did. And they're like, oh, yeah, he did. He did. I'm like, okay, well, that's a miracle. Uh, and so, like, if we have such a hard time waiting on the Lord. But it's beautiful when God does a work and you know I genuinely had nothing to do with that. I just got to be a part of it. That's the best story. But it's all too rare. And so... I think one of the little subplots in here, because we've seen the Holy Spirit played out in this story. But, you know, we also see baptism played out in this story. And this is not a message for me to convince you to get dunked versus sprinkled, although we can have those conversations, or sprinkled over dunked. I'm not as good at those conversations. Um, but, like, we can, we can debate all those things. But the picture of baptism is in here. Look, look back at verses 21 and 22. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and was made dry land. And the sea was made dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the left and their right. Now, if you think I'm making this up, when you look at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, what do you see? You see Jesus walk into the waters, and he is taken under the waters where there's a wall on both sides of him, and he comes back up out of the waters, and what happens? There's a voice from heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. 
Well, the Holy Spirit's also pictured as fire in places in Scripture. And so, in a sense, you have the cloud, God speaking from the heavens. You have the Holy Spirit, this fire that's coming down on him. What's happening here? They're going through the waters, and you've got the cloud, and you've got the fire, and you've got the whole picture. And when they come through, it is the symbol of the birth of a new nation. And when people come through the baptismal waters, it is the symbol of the birth of a new life. Unless you think I'm making this up, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 4, Paul takes this passage and he expounds it way further than I just expounded it. And he talks about this baptism that people were baptized into Moses and drank from the rock, which is Christ. He takes it and he expounds it way more than I just expounded it. And so that's not a stretch. It's this incredible foreshadowing of the baptism that we have privy to these days. The baptism in Christ, where we go, we start as the old, and we go through the waters, and we are washed, and the Lord is present. And when we come out, it is the symbol of the new birth of a person. And so we have the Holy Spirit in here. We have baptism in here. Uh, we have this, this incredible song that Moses is going to sing in chapter 15, the whole first part when they come through. It's this incredible moment. I'll just read one verse to you. Look at chapter 15, verse 11. One of the lines in there is actually a line that a lot of translators change the words to. They don't like the words to this one line in, uh, in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? People for years have changed the words, the Hebrew words, to make it something other than among the gods. Because people were afraid. You would read your Bible and you would see Exodus 15 verse 11 and you would say, oh, so the Bible affirms there are other gods. Note, it is a small g. It is not a big g. And note, if you were here two weeks ago, we went through all 10 plagues. What was the response of God to each of the Egyptian gods, little g? Every plague was destroying one of those little gods. The first plague destroyed one god. The second plague destroyed a second god. The third, a third god, and so on and so on and so on to the 10th plague, which destroyed Pharaoh himself who is viewed as the ultimate God. And so Moses, in singing this song, is not saying there are other gods. What he's saying is we have other gods. They're not real, but we have plenty of other gods. And who is like you, O Lord, among those little gods that we have? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? If we had time right now, I would just stop, and I would just have you tell the people around you, have you ever had one of those moments where the Lord did something so extraordinary you just knew it was him? One of those real Red Sea moments where you're like, I didn't know if he was ever going to show up, and then he showed up in a bigger way than I could ever imagine. Every Tuesday night when I see you, it's one of those Red Sea moments. I think the Lord did more than I ever thought he could do, and the Lord did this. And the Lord has brought us together, and this is incredible. I mean, I think it's, 
It's, it's a waiting on the Lord, and he does these incredible things, and then he just helps us realize in those moments, those other little things that I was holding on to are just so trivial. Why do I keep going back to them? Then, at the end of chapter 15, we have one of the strangest stories that's taken place thus far in the Bible. There's another story that's really strange. It's the story of the floating axe head and Elisha. Um, and we might tell that story one day. It's equally as strange as this story. But like, this is one of the stranger stories in the Bible. From the way it's written all the way to like the ending of it. It's just a strange story. So let's spend the next few minutes looking at this story. Uh, it may say bitter water made sweet or something like that at the top of the, of the column that it's in. But starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. I don't know if you've ever known anyone named Marah, but it actually does mean bitterness. Sorry. Um, I didn't make that up, though. So, <clears throat> anyway. Because it was bitter, therefore it was named Mara. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. This is where the term Jehovah Rapha comes from, the Lord our healer. And then they came to Eliam, where, they were, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. End of the story. It's a really bizarre little story. The ending of it, and then they came to this place where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms. Uh, and after that, we're going to get into manna. Like the next chapter is like how the manna comes down. Like what a strange little story. So, so far, we've had a few things. We've had baptism. We've had the Holy Spirit's leading. And I think what we're going to be able to see in just a minute is that in this little story, you're going to see Eden, you're going to see Jesus, and you're going to see entering God's rest. It's a pretty incredible little story. So let's take a look through it. And some of this came from the Bible Project. Some of it came from some commentaries. But it was one of those stories that I was like, what is the point of this story? And some other folks have done some digging, and it's pretty incredible what's in these six little verses here. So let's take a look. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went there into the wilderness of Shur. There they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Let me tell you how Jewish people read their Bible. They read that verse, and do you know what they say? They say, no one should go three days without water, and no one should go three days without Torah. Because water is one thing. You can die if you don't have water, but you can really die if you don't have Torah. And so on Monday, on Thursday and on, I'm sorry, Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday, they read the Torah. They're like, no one should go more than three days without having Torah. Now, when you read this verse, would you ever think that? Maybe we can learn to read our Bibles a little better. So they read this and they're like, well, they went without water. No one should do that. No one should go without Torah. And so to this day, the Torah is read publicly at least three times a week because no one should go three days without Torah. Then, 
They came to Marah. They couldn't drink the water because the water's bitter. That's why it's named Marah. And the people grumble against Moses. And they said, what are we going to drink? And he cries out to the Lord. God shows him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water becomes sweet. Now, in this story, after this, they're going to go to a place where there's 12 springs and there's 70 palm trees. So how many people went down to Egypt originally from Jacob's family? 70. How many tribes came out? 12. And so what you have at the end of the story is this idea that, hey, God took you as a small group and God blessed you and multiplied you and made you a huge group and God will always take care of you. But then in the middle there, it says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and he tested them. So in this little story, the way, that the, the way that it is written, it's really kind of literary genius. And certainly I believe that this is God-breathed, God-inspired, the Holy Spirit-driven. But what we have is literary genius here. So before I put it all together, let's just go through this middle section. Therefore, are there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them. So God's going to give them a rule, and he gave them a test. We know the test. The test was, do you trust me to give you water? And he made a rule for them. Verse 26 is the rule. Here's the rule. If you will diligently listen, if you're a writer in your Bible, you should cross out the word listen or diligently, and you should write listen above diligently. In Hebrew, it is shema, shema. The Lord said, you shall shema, shema. And it's actually illustrated a third time in there. It's emphasized a third time. So the Lord's saying, you will listen to me as much as a person can listen. And listening, the word Shema, the word to listen, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That's, that's the, the, the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6. The word Shema, listen. If I'm like, hey, listen to me. Like Heather, she's a teacher. If she's like, hey, listen to me, the little kid ought to listen. But they shouldn't just listen, they should do. In Hebrew, it's never just hear, it's hear and obey. In English, we would translate it trust and obey. And so what the Lord says to them, he says, I'm going to make you a rule. And here's the rule. You need to trust and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And you need to do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes and I will protect you and I won't put any of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. And then all of a sudden, there's trees and there's water flowing. Now here's why I think it's brilliant. What happened in the garden? What happened in Eden? There was a tree. And there's rivers flowing around the tree in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, there was a test. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from the tree of life. Don't eat from that. And what happens? What does, what does Adam and Eve do? They eat from the one tree they can't, they can't eat from. And sin and death come into the world. They fail the test. And since they failed the test, everybody fails the test. And no one gets to rest in the Lord. Eden is blocked off and everyone is kicked out. What happens in this story? There's a test. And everybody fails the test. Spare one man. 
And the one man in this story who didn't fail the test was Moses. They grumbled to Moses. He calls out to God. As he's calling out to God, he sees a stick. I don't know if he knew, like, the, the flora and fauna, and he was like, oh, this stick actually cleanses water. Um, I don't know if he knew. I don't, I don't know how miraculous it was or how scientific it was. I don't know what happened exactly there. He throws it in the water. It's a purification thing. The water becomes drinkable, and he passes the test. When the one man in this story passes the test, everybody who's following him enters into the rest. And what is the rest? It is another picture of Eden. It is a bunch of trees with a bunch of water flowing around and God in the presence of them with the fire and the cloud. This story tells, this little story tells the whole fall of man and it predicts the whole redemption of man. Because all of us fail the test, spare one man, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ passes the test and lives a perfect life and then goes to the cross for my sins, everyone who follows him, though they have failed the test, enters the rest. And it's a powerful, powerful moment. That's why this little weird story is in here, because it's not weird at all. It captures the beginning of the Bible, and it foreshadows all the way into the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation. Because we celebrate one man who passed the test. And that one man who passed the test, though we all fail the test, allows us to enter into the new heaven and the new earth and the new Eden that the Lord is going to make. And so I think we have to ask, so what does it all mean? Well, if I have followed the man, Jesus, who passed the test, and I am now part of his family, and I will enter into the holy place of the Lord one day, and I will have that rest on this side of heaven, I need to be a person who trusts and obeys. Just to say that I trust Jesus without obedience is hypocrisy. But to obey Jesus' commands alone is moralism. To really trust and obey in the purest form is to believe Jesus knowing that you are hopeless and damned without his blood and then we obey as though we are his slaves because you are a slave to something, I promise you. Paul, in every one of his letters, almost every one of his letters says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, a slave, a bond servant. Paul knew he would be a slave to something. And so he said, if I'm going to be a slave to something, I might as well be a slave to the one thing in this world that loves me. And if you are a slave to something or someone, you have to ask, how well will that person or thing care for me if I give it my life? I want us to be a people who trust and obey, not a people who long for the old life or occasionally visit the old country. I want us to be a people who, out of gratitude for what Jesus has done, make ourselves a slave to him. And as we, as we finish tonight... I think you got to ask yourself the question, 
How is the trust and obey going? Do you really trust, if you're a person that wants to get married, that God can provide you a spouse? Or are you like, well, I kind of got to be on every app there is. And I got to make a few compromises here and there because I trust God, but like I don't fully trust him. He needs my help. Do you trust that if you just put your head down and do your work and you don't sell out and you don't compromise, that, that at the right time, in the right way, you'll get where you need to get in your career? Do you trust that when God calls you to a standard of purity and a standard of honesty, that like it's actually for your own good? Is there anything you've been holding on to that you know I don't really trust the Lord in this and I'm certainly not obeying him in that? If so, you're like an Israelite longing for Egypt and it is a slap in the face of God freeing you from that land. So what's the thing? What's the next right move? What's the way that you are supposed to trust and obey? I'm going to pray, and we're going to have a couple of songs to close out, and there's going to be some folks right over there, our prayer team, and I think they would love to put a hand on your shoulder or just to stand with you and to pray that you would have the faith to believe that God is the same God today who parted the sea then, that he is worth trusting and obeying. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You are the same God who parted the sea and got the Israelites across on dry ground. Lord, you are capable and you are worthy and you are greatest among all the little gods, Lord, because you are the true God. Lord, would you just convict our hearts in any area where we have not trusted you and where we're certainly not obeying you. Lord, you convict us and keep us from going back to Egypt. Keep us from longing for that. And Lord, help us to trust that even in the wilderness, you'll provide water and shelter for us, Lord. Lord, help us to cling to you with all we got and to not be folks who go back to the old ways. Lord, you are worthy of our trust and our obedience because you are the one man who passed the test. And I thank you that because of that, we get to enter into your rest, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray.